As Pastor Ken said a couple of times last week, we're coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Life Discourse, and Jesus is, in a sense, uh, winding down in his preaching, in his message. He is coming to his concluding remarks. And in doing so, he gives some summary comments, and he also gives a pretty powerful call for response, which we'll begin to get into this morning in the passage that we're looking at. But interestingly, as we come to the end of the sermon, he starts talking about what we might call entrance requirements. And it may seem a little bit odd that that would show up at the end of the message rather than at the beginning. But here we, we're thinking about the kingdom of heaven. We're thinking about Jesus' kingdom and how to be a part of that. This whole message has been, this whole sermon that Jesus has been preaching has been called the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. And he's been describing what citizenship in the kingdom of heaven looks like. What people who have their heavenly citizenship in place live like and should live like. And so he's been talking a lot about how we should be living and how should we, we should be talking and treating each other. And as I thought about this, I recognized that there's some other places where Jesus talks about entering the kingdom and what is required for that. And I was able to pull together 10 entrance requirements. There are prerequisites. There are entrance requirements of sorts. Let me give you those 10. We'll move through these pretty quickly And I'll show you some of the passages that talk about this. Most of them come from the Gospel of Matthew, and we've seen a couple of them already. Uh, Others come from other places. But let's consider Jesus' entrance requirements for entering the kingdom of heaven. Number one, we saw earlier in the sermon, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew 5, 20, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Second, in our passage this morning, in verse 21 of Matthew 7, we'll see that he speaks of doing the will of his heavenly Father. Doing God's will is an entrance requirement. It's those who do the will of the Father who enter the kingdom. Third, later in Matthew's gospel, we'll see him saying that you must turn and become like little children. Matthew 18, 3. You must turn and become like children in a certain sense. We'll come to that later on. A fourth entrance requirement is in his conversation with the man who's become known as the rich young ruler. In that conversation in Matthew 19, 17, he says you must keep the commandments. You must keep the commandments in order to enter life. And we see from Matthew 19 in his conversation with that man and the context there that it's clear that entering life is the same thing as entering the kingdom. That's the same reality that we're talking about here. Fifth comes from the parable of the talents, as it's become known from Matthew 25 in verses 21 and 23. He speaks of serving faithfully, that you've served faithfully with what God has given you, with what God has entrusted to you. And then you will enter into the joy of your master. A sixth requirement comes outside, uh, from outside the Gospel of Matthew, but it will be hinted at this morning. Acts 14.22 indicates that we must endure many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, those first six are lumped together, and the last four will be lumped together. Those first six, if we stopped there, you should all be freaking out. You should all be panicking. You should all be feeling just despair. Because those first six, they focus on what we do. Doing the will of God. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't get in. This is a prerequisite. And those first six are all about what we do, how we live, how we respond. Fortunately, there are four more that take us to the backdrop and the context for our doing. The first one, number seven on this list, is in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, verse 5. You must be born of water and the Spirit. John 3, 5. Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. And we can hold this one together with the six that we just talked about to recognize that you have to be born first before you do all of those other things. Before you serve faithfully, before your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you must be born of God, born of the Spirit. An eighth Require, entrance requirement comes from an interesting place at the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22, verse 14, where we're talking about entering the new creation at the very end. Revelation twenty two fourteen 14 says you must wash your robes. You must wash your robes. Revelation twenty two fourteen 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Ninth requirement comes from the book of Hebrews. It can be summarized simply as believe the good news and obey God's word. And I put those together as a single entrance requirement because they're two sides of the same coin. To believe the gospel and obey its implications comes from Hebrews chapter 3 verse 18 through chapter 4 verse 11. That chunk where the writer, the speaker, Hebrews is a sermon that's been put down on paper is talking about the need to enter God's Sabbath rest. To enter rest. And it becomes pretty clear from that passage that he he means the same thing as we see from Jesus and other places about entering the kingdom of God and entering eternal life. Sabbath rest is that experience of eternal life. And when we look in this passage, we see it takes on a couple of different contours. Hebrews 3.19 So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now the writer's pointing back to the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness when they were wandering around and they had approached the promised land. And he's pointing back to their experience and saying they couldn't go in. They couldn't cross the Jordan River when they first got there and take possession of the land of Canaan because of unbelief. That's why they couldn't go. Because they did not believe the promise that God had told them, I'm going to give you this land. They refused to believe that, and so they could not enter in. Now that, the author of the Hebrews is telling us, was a picture that pointed forward to the true rest that was to come for all of God's people in the future, ultimately in the new creation. So he's able to point back to that and draw the lesson out for his Christian hearers that in order for us to enter the kingdom... To enter the true Sabbath rest, 
We must believe. We cannot follow their pattern, their uh, model, and reject faith, unbelief. Secondly, in Hebrews 4, 3, he says, For we who have believed enter that rest. For we who have believed. That's the key piece. We've believed and we enter that rest. And so he's drawing the point across to us. We've already in one sense entered that rest. And this is where we begin to see what we've been seeing very clearly, I think, in Matthew's gospel. There's this already and not yet component. And we talk about entrance requirements, and we're going to talk about entering through the gate in just a little bit. We've got to think in two ways at the same time. Because in one sense, you enter through that gate right now. But in another sense, you don't enter until the resurrection in the future. And so you've got to hold those two pieces together. And the author of the Hebrews does that for us. He pulls that together and says, you enter the rest now. And yet you're waiting to enter the full experience of rest in the future. A few verses down in that same paragraph, Hebrews 4, 6. Those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. So just a few verses earlier in 3.19, he said they didn't enter because of unbelief. Now, he says they didn't enter because of disobedience. Two sides of the same coin. And so he's charging us and encouraging us that we must respond to the gospel as it's preached, the good news as it's presented, with faith and obedience that must be in place. But the final Entrance requirement is, again, at the end of the Bible, and yet it takes us back before all of these other ones. Revelation 21, 27, you must have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And if you're reading through the book of Revelation, you would find back in chapter 13, verse 8, and in chapter 17, other mentions of this book of life. You find out that when was your name written in this book? Before the foundation of the world. This is an image, a metaphor, a figure of speech, having your name written in the citizen registry, that your name is marked down as a citizen of a particular place. That's a picture that's being painted of election of God's choosing before the foundation of the world. It's pictured as a citizenship registry. And so before you have all of these other entrance requirements that you actually live out in your experience, this one has to be in place. And you don't have any control over that. That is solely by God's grace. And what we begin to see as we kind of dig into the details, and even as we draw these pieces out from Jesus' sermon here, we find that it's By grace back then, but it's also by grace now and by grace all along the way and by grace at the finish line. It is all of grace that we get in, that we stay in, and that we make it to the end. And so when we think about these entrance requirements, that's the big picture that we're looking at. All of these things have to be in place for you to enter the kingdom of God. And the beauty of it all is even the obedience piece God is the one who enables and provides even that. So if you're going to get in, God's got to do it. God's got to give it. God's got to provide it. And the beauty of it is, He does. He does.
And so now let's look at our closing passage or moving into the closing of the kingdom life discourse. We're picking up in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, and moving to through verse 23 this morning. I'll have one final paragraph to consider next Sunday uh, to finish out this particular uh, sermon. And so we begin in verse 12, and Jesus is going to tell us what to do. And then in verses 13 through 13 and 14, he's going to tell us where to go. And then in verses 15 and 20, he's going to 15 to 20, he's going to tell us who to avoid. And then finally, in verses 21 to 23, he's going to tell us what matters most. And so we need to put all these things together. So let's begin with what to do. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is a big summary statement for Jesus as he's moving toward the conclusion of this great sermon. He's moving toward the conclusion and he's drawing a summary statement of all that he has said. Now, it doesn't include every detail. That's not what a summary statement does, right? It gives you in a nutshell the big point that Jesus wants you to get. The first word of the sentence is so, and it's a strong so. It's a so then, therefore, in light of everything I've just been saying. And it takes us back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the last time that he mentioned the law and the prophets. Matthew 5, 17. Early in the sermon, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now as he moves to his conclusion, he gives us a nutshell summary statement of what the requirements of the law and the prophets are. He can encapsulate that in this sentence that's so often been called the golden rule. Incidentally, the history behind that is somewhat curious. It's not referred to as the golden rule because it's particularly special or particularly wonderful, although it's great. (laughs) It's called the golden rule because a certain emperor in the Middle Ages saw this statement and thought it was so great that he wrote it out and embossed it in gold and hung it up in his palace. And a later church father, all the way forward in the Reformation period, looked back at that historical detail and said, well, we can call that the golden rule because this guy embossed it in gold and put it up in his palace and it's so important. And the name just kind of stuck. That's why it's called the golden rule. That's all. It's only here in all of Scripture that it's summarized quite this way. But it is pretty special, so let's unpack that for just a minute. Jesus does say this is the law and the prophets. He's saying that the law and the prophets, like the whole Old Testament, is essentially what he's pointing to here. Everything that's expected of God's people in the Old Testament can be summarized in this little statement. That's pretty, a pretty big deal. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going to do something similar. Famously, he's going to be asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he's going to give two. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Combining Deuteronomy 6.5 with Leviticus 19.18. Pulling those two together. And then he says, on these two hang the whole law and the prophets. This has... Tight closeness with the second of those, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. The focus here is on your responsibility toward other people among God's people. That's the emphasis here. And there's been a lot of that in the kingdom life discourse, right? He's 
talked a lot about how we should be treating each other as citizens of his kingdom. And so he narrows that down here in a very... It's odd in some ways. It's a little bit unexpected for us who've kind of been trained in Christian thinking. Because we have a tendency to be suspicious about our desires. We, we don't want our desires to be the governor of our behavior. That's a general principle that's pretty good. And yet here in this summary statement, Jesus points to our desires. Whatever you wish, whatever you will Whatever you would like, whatever you prefer, whatever you desire that others would do to you, do that to them. So he points to you and says, why don't you consider for just a minute what you would want in this situation if the shoe were on the other foot? Now, again, I think we have to recognize that when he says something like this, he is implying that our wishes, our will, our desires should be shaped by his teaching. So that it's not here, well, anything goes. Because then this becomes a very, very selfish principle. But if he means whatever you wish others would do to you in light of what, you, what, I ta- what I've taught you about what your priorities should be, then do that to other people. I think then it makes a little bit more sense and it pulls us away from a selfishness that uh, can drive us totally in the wrong direction. But the implication here is really freeing because there's, he's not going to give us a list of rules that tell us what to do in every little situation. He gives us this principle that has vast applicability. Now the focus is on our interpersonal relationships But there are oftentimes in our interpersonal relationships and we don't know what exactly to do. We don't know what's best. We don't know what's most helpful. This principle should be our guide in those kinds of situations. Interestingly, this teaches almost exactly the opposite of the famous five love languages, which suggests that you need to figure out how the other person best receives love and then fill up their love tank by pouring in with those kinds of actions. This then gets applied to marriage and parenting especially. Jesus, however, says, love how you want to be loved. As a side note, against the whole premise of the five love languages, I believe it's important for us to receive love how it is given, how it is offered to us, both in our relationship to God and our relationship to other people. And we also need to learn to express love in a variety of ways. This is a skill for life that we should be teaching our children rather than assuming that our personalities are created with such rigid contours such as a specifically shaped love tank that only certain kind of gestures actually fit and fill. Back to Jesus. What he says here is a principle that can give us As I said, incredible freedom in our relationships. Sometimes in our decision-making, when it comes down to it, and it comes to interpersonal relationships, we're asking the wrong question. Sometimes we want to ask, what does God want me to do in this situation? The Bible never instructs us to ask that question. Rather, in this principle, Jesus instructs us to ask the question... How would I want to be treated in this situation? 
For example, drawing from earlier in Matthew chapter 7, when we see one of our fellow church members in unrepentant sin, we shouldn't need to pray about it. To ask the Lord, should I talk to this person about what I've seen? Rather, we should ask ourselves, if I were doing what they're doing and they saw me, would I want that person to confront me? Guided by the teaching of Scripture, I would hope the answer would be obvious. Oswald Chambers provides a quick summary of applications from this golden rule. I would like people to give me credit for the generous motives I have. Well, give them credit for having generous motives. I would like people never to pass harsh judgments on me. Well, don't pass harsh judgments on them. I would like other people to pray for me. Well, pray for them. The measure of our growth in grace is our attitude towards other people. It's true that this is much more demanding than if Jesus had said, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. But that is implied in what Jesus says. And it's important to observe that he doesn't say, do to others so that they will do to you. Or the very wicked perversion, do to others before they do to you. So that's what to do. A good summary of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, the Kingdom Life Discourse, a good summary of the expectations of the Old Testament as well. Now he's going to talk about where to go in verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life, and those who find it are few. Enter what? Enter where? He doesn't spell it out for us here, but taking again the broader context of this single sermon, enter the kingdom. Enter Jesus' heavenly kingdom. Or, as he'll say in just a little bit later, enter life. Enter the experience of eternal life. By the narrow gate, through the narrow gate. He gives that command. That's his primary instruction here for how he wants you to respond to his preaching from Matthew 5 through 7. That's the response. So remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Okay, He's gone up this elevated place, up to the top of this mountain, this hill. And he's gathered his disciples around him. Those who've already made some kind of commitment to him. But at the end, we're going to see again that... Crowds came too, and they were listening to this message. And so at this point, he's addressing his disciples, but he's also speaking out beyond them, recognizing he's got other listeners. But you need to know that his disciples, those who've already made some kind of commitment to follow him at this point, haven't really entered the kingdom of heaven yet either. They're not Christians. They're not believers yet. At this point. So the command is for them as well. They need to enter. But even if he's talking to them as believers, or even as we think about this as believers, as we're reading this, there's still an entrance to come. Yes, we've entered in the first place, as we'll see in just a moment. But there's another entrance that's coming that he wants to focus our attention on in just a bit. But he gives that initial command, but then he warns us about the alternative. The gate is wide. 
It's wide open. There's room to go through this gate for lots of people with lots of stuff. You can go on through, and on the other side, you're going to find an easy way, an easy path, a road. And what he means, the word that's translated easy there, is a word for spacious. There's lots of room on this, on this road. There's room for you and all your friends. There's room for you and all your stuff. There's room for you to do what you want to do. If there's an advertisement on this wide gate, the advertisement or the label for where you're going is freedom. This is the way that looks like when you look through and you see all these people doing whatever they want to do. That seems real attractive, real inviting. I want to go where I can do whatever I want to do. I want to go where there's freedom. There's no restrictions. That's what I want. And that's the attraction of this easy, spacious pathway. But Jesus tells us the truth about this. He does not sugarcoat this in any way. He tells us about the destination. The sign may say you're headed to freedom. But the true destination of that road is destruction. Eternal destruction. He is warning his listeners that if you go that way, the way that it seems like everybody's going, the way that allows you to take whatever you want, you can go on your own terms and you can do whatever you want to do, the end of that road is hell. Eternal judgment. And he is warning his listeners Openly, honestly, clearly. He does not sugarcoat anything. And we should be grateful that he does not. But then in verse 14, he goes into discussing the nature of the gate, the other gate, the gate he wants us to go through, the gate he's calling us to go through. It is narrow. There's only room for you to go by yourself. You have to enter this gate alone. You can't enter it hanging on the coattails of your parents. You can't enter it arm in arm with your buddies. You have to go through this gate alone. There's only room for one at a time to go through this gate. And when you get through the gate, you're going to find that the road is narrow. The road is hard. That's the way that our English Bibles typically put it. The Greek word that's used here that's translated hard is a word for pressurized, constricted, tight, it's a tight squeeze on this road. It's not because it's overcrowded. It's because there are real borders on this road. And there's two ideas, I think, at play here. The Greek word that, Paul uses, that Jesus uses here, Matthew uses telling about Jesus, what Jesus said here, is a word that usually refers to tribulation. The noun that comes from this verb is usually translated tribulation. And so we could title this road Tribulation Trail. This is the road. This is the way. Tribulation Trail is the normal Christian life. And so Jesus uses this word, I think, to show that the pathway, the road that you're going to be walking on once you've entered the narrow gate, is filled with difficulty. It's hard in the sense that there's opposition. There's persecution. You're going to find the world around you pushing against you. Why? There's something about this road itself that is constricted. And I think it has to do with the requirements, the commands 
the restrictions. If the other road is wide open spaces where you can do whatever you want to do, this road is hard because Jesus tells you you must live this way and not that way. There are commands that restrict your behavior. There are commands that restrict your desires. There are commands that should shape the way that you think about life on this road. That makes it hard. And when you live according to those restrictions, when you live according, within the boundaries of this road, when you stay on the path and don't get in the ditch, opposition and persecution will come. That's why it comes, because we're living differently than the world. That's why persecution comes, because we believe something that they reject, that is threatening to them. That's why it comes. And so this road is hard. But Jesus tells us that the destination is worth it all, life. And he means eternal life. Nothing less than eternal life. And he tells us, Honestly, those who find it are few. Now, I don't think here Jesus is making a mathematical comparison. He's not counting up all through history how many people are going to find the narrow road and how many people are not. He's simply saying when you come to that point of decision, when you come to the moment when you are presented with that narrow gate, it's going to look like there's nobody around. It's going to look like there's nobody going that way. It's going to be you at the gate all alone. And when you cross through that, when you enter that gate, you're going to find that there is a whole community, that there is a huge family that's a part of that. But it's still going to look like when you look out around you that you're in the minority. And in the world, when you compare, you are. You are. But you're headed on the road to life. That's the thing to remember here. So when we look at these verses and we hear this, this is a figure of speech. Again, Jesus is using figurative language. We have to ask the question, what is the narrow gate exactly? What is the narrow gate? And I think we can say, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the narrow gate. And I think we can take some biblical reasoning from that in another place that where Jesus talks about entering among God's people, he's using a different metaphor and a different figure of speech in John chapter 10, speaking of the shepherd imagery and the sheep entering a sheepfold. But in John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So, if we can borrow that and bring it over to Matthew appropriately, Jesus is the door. He's the entryway. He's the only entryway. So what he's saying is, if you want to get to the destination of life, you've got to go through him and him alone. There is no other way. So what he's talking about here when he says, enter through the narrow gate, he's saying, believe in me. Respond to me. Come to me. And when you come to him, you enter onto tribulation trail. You enter into the hard road that is tribulation trail. This connects with what I've already alluded to, Acts chapter 14, verses 20, verse 22. Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, 
that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You won't enter the kingdom of God outside of tribulation trail. That is the way. The only way. But the life that's promised at the end is worth it all, as I've said. When Jesus says it leads to life, he's talking about at the end of the road. So again, you enter the gate here and now when you trust in Jesus in your lifetime. And you enter the gate and you begin walking tribulation trail. And at the end of the road, you enter life. Now again, in one sense, right? You have eternal life the moment you trust in Jesus. Your life will last forever. But in another sense, life begins when you are raised from the dead. That's the kind of life that Jesus is talking about here. At the end of tribulation, at the end of a life of hardship, you enter into resurrection life on the last day. That's what Jesus is pointing us toward, resurrection life. So in one sense, we enter the kingdom by coming to Jesus, trusting Him right now in this life. We become citizens of the heavenly kingdom now. But in another sense, we enter the kingdom when we enter the new Jerusalem after our resurrection from the dead. Thus, Jesus can speak of entering the kingdom in two different ways. Initial entrance is like gaining your citizenship papers. And we receive those by faith alone. But final entrance refers to our arrival in the kingdom when we are raptured or raised from the dead. The hard road, tribulation trail, Jesus speaks of leads into that final entrance. If you don't enter by trusting in Jesus in the first place, you won't walk on tribulation trail and you won't enter on the last day. That's the warning here. So that's the picture. That's where to go and where not to go. Let's talk about who to avoid. Along the way, we're going to run into some problems. And Jesus introduces us to some of them here in verses 15 to 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus warns us that as we walk along tribulation trail, there are going to be false prophets. There are going to be those who would lead us onto the other road. They're going to be pointing to a different Jesus, a different gospel, and a different way of life. And they're going to be speaking attractively. And they're going to be seeking to convince you that they're telling you the truth. And they're going to tell the truth sometimes. False prophets are only successful if they hook you with some truth. If they're never telling truth, then we would never fall for it. But they are cunning and deceptive in disguising themselves in this way. But Jesus says... You will recognize them by their fruits. Now that might take a long time. It might take a while for the fruit to grow on that tree so that you can see it well enough. 
so that you can know what they really are. But he assures us that we can, we can unmask them, as it were. And he warns us of the danger here, and this is incredibly serious. And he gives us a picture here. The trees, he shifts from wolves in sheep's clothing to trees bearing fruit. The tree is your identity, who you really are. And the fruit is what you produce. And so how do you inspect? How do you discover who the person is? Well, you look at their fruit. Well, what is the fruit? Well, for a false prophet, it's multiple kinds of fruit. It's their teaching. It's their life and their conduct. It's the impact they have on other people, the people who are following them, the people who are listening to them. That's fruit that you can see and objectively analyze and assess. Oswald Chambers writes, There is no allowance whatever in the New Testament for the man who says he is saved by grace, but who does not produce the graceful goods. Jesus Christ, by his redemption, can make our actual life in keeping with our religious profession. Notice that Jesus describes them as wearing sheep's clothing. They look like sheep at first. They act like sheep at first. They smell like sheep at first. So how are we to know what they are inwardly? They are inwardly, Jesus says, ravenous wolves. Wolves who want to tear you up, eat you, and destroy you. How do you discern that? How do you discover that? Well, eventually, what's on the inside comes out. If you want to discover what's on the inside before they let it slip out or it leaks out in some big scandal, as has often happened, you have to get really close to them. You have to inspect their lives. You have to be like the Bereans, willing to rigorously compare what they teach and preach with what the Scriptures actually say. Wolves in sheep's clothing are a greater problem today than they were in the early church. Why? Because in the early church, for a wolf to damage the sheep, it actually had to get inside the sheepfold. And it could only harm the sheep inside that sheepfold. Now, wolves utilize the wonders of technology to spread their false messages all over the world. Worse still... Sheep invite wolves into the privacy of their cars and the privacy of their homes. If you're not going to be like those noble Bereans concerning the podcasts you listen to or the YouTube videos you watch, you would be much better off listening to nothing from teachers who are not part of your church. Or at least consider asking your elders whether they've done the Berean work regarding a particular teacher and whether we could recommend them or not. If I, if I seek to steer you away from some teacher or preacher, I, I hope that you don't see that as some kind of judgmentalism on my part toward other teachers. As a shepherd of this flock, I am deeply concerned that the sheep of this flock are not consuming poisonous weeds outside the sheepfold. Jesus tells all of his followers to beware of false prophets. And the Apostle Paul specifically warned the elders of the church of Ephesus 
about fierce wolves who would twist the scriptures in order to draw followers of Jesus away. It is a clear and present danger, and I take that part of my job seriously. Folks, false prophets, false teachers are going to have huge churches. They're going to be popular. They're going to have millions of subscribers on social media. Don't let that be the criteria that you judge their faithfulness. You have to do the work if you're going to consider consuming the teaching that they're offering. This is really dangerous. This is not the only place where this comes up in the New Testament. This is a repeated warning throughout the New Testament of the danger to Christians that false teaching can do. We're talking about the possibility of being led down the road that leads to eternal destruction. I am convinced that the many that Jesus has described who will go down the broad way and find their way in hell, many of them will have been led astray by false teachers in these large churches that are twisting the scriptures. They're giving you enough scripture that's true to hook. But then they're leading you down the road that will lead to a destruction. And I don't want to see that happen to any of you. And so I am very serious about this. I think Jesus and the New Testament writers are very serious about this. Jesus flows from this in verses 21 to 23, talking about what matters most in all of this. What matters most. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Coming right out of that previous passage, the many who might claim Jesus as Lord with their mouths may be those who were led astray by false prophets. Don't be impressed when you go on social media or YouTube and you see a pastor, a preacher, a teacher who's claiming these great miracles, these great signs, or making fantastic prophecies. Jesus says here that there will be many who claim those kinds of things who will be rejected on Judgment Day. When we talk about the fruit that the tree will produce, this doesn't count. Miraculous deeds, stepping up to speak for God, casting out demons, that doesn't count as the kind of fruit that Jesus is concerned with here. Many will be able to claim those kinds of things and yet will find their eternity in hell. Don't be impressed and led astray by the fantastic. Don't be distracted by those kinds of things. What matters most here, the one who does the will of my Father, that becomes the key piece. And so he's saying that that many who really do stand up and speak the word of God, prophesy in the name of Jesus, many who do successfully cast demons out of people, many who do miraculous things in the name of Jesus, 
are not doing the will of God in all of those things. And they will be rejected on Judgment Day, even as they make their protest about these kinds of things. It doesn't seem that Jesus is suggesting that they're lying about these things. They seem to have really, actually done the things they claim to do. And he rejects it. And notice that they claim all along, Lord, Lord. You know, we go to Romans 10, 9 oftentimes, and I wonder if we remember when we quote it, what it says. Romans 10, 9, For if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Well, I left something out. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart, in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The decisive piece of that confession, of that statement, is the faith in the heart. Not the words on your lips. Making a profession of faith alone, saying the words, Jesus is Lord, does not save anybody. There must be genuine faith in the heart. And the only way we're going to know if that faith really is there in the heart is if it comes out in our lives, in our deeds, and in our words. But words are the easy thing to fake. I can say, Lord, Lord, all day long. Everybody on the planet can say the word, Jesus is Lord. But to have faith in the heart that then produces fruit in the life. I can't do that by myself. I can't manufacture that. And that's what we need to be looking for. And that has nothing to do with miracles. That has nothing to do with miracles. These claims can be falsified by the power of Satan. Or just really good technology these days. I'm going to bypass a section for the sake of time here. You can ask me later if you're curious about how can non-believers, because these are non-believers, that's what we're talking about. They're false believers, false prophets. How can they actually cast demons out? How can that work? You can ask me sometime. I'm going to bypass that for the sake of our time this morning. But the point that we need to see here is that these folks will have been people who claim to be Christians. They will have served in churches They will have stepped up behind pulpits to speak for God. They will have really performed miracles. They really will have somehow expelled demons. Some of them will have been false prophets that never got challenged or never received correction as often as they got challenged. And these folks, Jesus has in mind, will have died expecting their next waking moment to be in the presence of Jesus. Instead, they will have awakened to the unpleasantness of Hades. And then, on that day, after Jesus returns to this earth, wraps up human history, raises his people from the graves, and after we have spent a millennium reigning with him on this earth, Jesus will summon those poor souls from their graves, and they will stand before his great white throne in resurrected bodies. And they will use their resurrected voices to protest His righteousness one last time. At that time, 
He will send them away, casting them into hell, where they will be punished eternally for their lawlessness. Interestingly, this sentence, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, is an exact quotation from Psalm 6, 8. On Judgment Day, Jesus will use the inspired words of David where the righteous king expressed his confidence in God for his final vindication because his suffering was not a result of his own sin and his confidence in God's elimination of his enemies. These folks, and Jesus says they will be many will have been known for working miracles, but Jesus will expose them finally for working lawlessness and rebellion. There would have been fruit in their lives that revealed that truth, both to them and to others. But there will be some who are so self-deceived that they will go to their graves, convinced for all the wrong reasons that they knew Jesus. It is not for no reason that this passage has sometimes been referred to as the scariest passage in the Bible. What matters most is the doing of the will of the Father. And it's important for us to consider what does that actually look like. I'll give you a couple of other texts that make it pretty clear. Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That means doing the will of God is evidence that you're a part of the family of God. It's evidence that shows that you're a child of God, that you're a member of his family. Said differently in a parable, Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 to 32, Jesus is discussing with some Pharisees, some scribes, some Jewish religious leaders. And he says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. Or literally, I go, Lord. But did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John, the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So Jesus says, the one who did the will of his father is the one who obeyed his father. The father said, go and work in the vineyard. The first son initially said with his mouth, no. But then he got up and did it. He went into the vineyard and worked. He did the will of his father. He obeyed the command of his father. But here Jesus indicates that it's also faith that's involved. He points them back to John the Baptist's preaching of the gospel. And he says to them, he preached the message. He came in the way of righteousness. Tax collectors and prostitutes who initially don't care about doing righteousness before God... And they believed his message. They received it. And they're going into the kingdom of God. And you're not. Even though you claim to be obedient to God's law. What's most important is doing the will of the Father. And secondly, even behind that, being known by Jesus. Notice the way he says this. 
when he tells them on the last day, the problem is, I never knew you. He didn't say, you didn't know me. He says, I never knew you. Paul speaks this way in Galatians 4.9. He just kind of is running along talking about relationship with the Lord in Galatians 4.9. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather... To be known by God. He corrects himself midstream because it's more important. It's decisive that God knows you. Not that you know God. That you come to know God. That you develop and cultivate a relationship with him is necessary. But the decisive thing is that he knows you. That's the decisive piece. Jesus says it this way in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. The way he's worded that, the one in the middle, I know them, governs the two on the outside. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Why? Because I know them. Not because they know me. Although, of course, they do. But it's decisive that he knows them. That he has initiated this relationship. That he has brought this relationship into existence. To wrap up. And conclude this morning, as we think about how to respond to this passage, we need to utilize a BPS. You know what a GPS is? Global Positioning System? Well, we need to utilize a BPS, a Biblical Positioning System. We've got to know where we are and where we're going. How do you do that? The question is, have you entered through the narrow gate? What's the road like that you're on? Take a look at your circumstances, at your life. What's the road look like? Is it pretty easy? Does it flow with the current of society? Who are you listening to? Whose words are you heeding? What is the outcome of their teaching? What is their manner of living? How do you know if you're doing the will of God? How do you know if Jesus knows you? Jesus in this kingdom life discourse is emphasizing the deeds of his followers. He's emphasizing that. That is one aspect of our lives that we can look at for evidence that supports our profession of faith. But it's not the only one. We all feel uncertainty at times. When we are living in sin, when we are struggling to reach repentance for a particular sin, we should not feel assured of our relationship with the Lord. If we reject the Bible or aren't interested in what it has to say about our lives, or if we seek to get around what it clearly says about how we should live, we should not feel assured of our relationship with the Lord. When we have those doubts, the Bible is the place we have to go back to, to get past them. The letter of 1 John is the best place to camp out during these moments or seasons. John tells us how we can know that we have eternal life. He comes at the answer rather circularly, and he circles around repeatedly, Five distinct lines of evidence. I'll run through these really quickly, I promise. Read the letter yourself. You'll see them there. And I've given you them in your sermon notes as well at the end. So let's run through these really quickly. First, ask what you're believing about Jesus right now. Do you recognize him as the Son of God, fully human and fully divine? Do you believe he is the Messiah, the God-sent Savior of the world, the true and rightful King over everything? Do you believe that he paid the penalty for your sin on the cross and that he rose from the dead? Second, ask how you're living in general. Is your lifestyle of late godly? 
Are you practicing the righteousness of Jesus' teaching? Are you seeking to believe and obey the apostles' teaching in the scriptures? Are you being like the Bereans in evaluating those you're listening to? And that includes me, by the way. Third, more specifically, how are you relating to other Christians? Are you actively loving your siblings in the faith? Are you seeking to treat them the way you want to be treated? Fourth, how are you handling your sin? Are you admitting it, acknowledging it, confessing it whenever you sin? Are you seeking to repent and avoid sin as much as possible? Are you fighting sinful tendencies in your life? Finally, do you see evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life? And that's really an umbrella category for all the others. It's the Spirit who enables us to understand the Scriptures properly and to believe the truth. It's the Spirit who enables us to live righteously, to love our fellow siblings. And it's the Spirit who enables us to successfully kill sin and grow in holiness. 1 John is the manual for our BPS. But it's supposed to be used primarily for self-examination, not neighbor examination. Notice that none of the lines of evidence are to be sought in the past. Don't look back to the profession of faith you made some years ago. Don't look back to your baptism alone. Don't look back to some experience you had a long time ago. Instead, examine your life today. Jesus doesn't intend for his followers to live in terror because of these words. But he does want us to recognize the ultimate cause of our entry through the narrow gate. It's him, not us. Some of us have read the book, The Unsaved Christian by Dean and Sarah. I commend it to all of you. He encourages us to consider what could potentially be our protest on Judgment Day. We might not be able to claim that we prophesied, cast out demons, or worked miracles after all. What things might we be tempted to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we fill in the blank? Lord, Lord, didn't we uphold conservative political policies and vote for Republican politicians? Lord, Lord, didn't we picket Planned Parenthood? Didn't we give half our money away to fight abortion in our community? Lord, Lord, didn't we go to church every single time the doors were opened? Lord, Lord, didn't we serve in children's ministry? Didn't we sit in the nursery with all the crying babies? Didn't we do all these things in the name of Jesus? The most important thing is that we are known by Jesus. If Jesus knows you, has a relationship with you, he will change your life. He will change your thinking. He will change your attitudes. He will change your habits. He will change your desires. If Jesus, the good shepherd, knows you as his sheep, once he calls you into the sheepfold, from that moment on and forever, you will Listen to and heed his voice in the scriptures. You will care what the Bible has to say about how you live and how you think. And you will submit to the Bible's authority over your life. And it's not just the Bible's authority over your life. It's Jesus's authority over your life. His voice is heard through this, the words printed on these pages. And you'll join other sheep who are feeding on his word. And then you will serve in your home, in your church, in your community, in your job, in out of a heart that's been transformed by the grace of God. You may do all of the things that I mentioned earlier, but you will not be duped into thinking that those are the reasons God will accept you on judgment day. 
The good shepherd, King Jesus, has given his life for the sheep. He has purchased us, claimed us, called us into his sheepfold, and he will walk with us through the dark valleys of life. Along the hard road of tribulation trail, all the way into the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. Don't play games with Jesus. Don't pretend to be his when you know that you're not. Take off your masks. The fruit of your life will reveal the fruit, the tree of your identity. You're not fooling Jesus, though you might fool the people around you for a little while. Give up the charade. Let go of the facade. Enter by the narrow gate. Trust Jesus for salvation. Follow him as your savior, your Lord, your king, your shepherd. Be among the few who find the narrow gate. Enter through it and walk the path of hardship. Joyfully accepting all that comes to us. As given in the hands of a loving father. Following Jesus who walked that path before us. He volunteered to hang on the cross and he has now been crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You owe him your eternal allegiance and he offers you eternal joy. Would you pray with me? Father, this passage can be scary. These words of Jesus push us to seriously consider where we are and whose we are. So would you help every person hearing the sound of my voice to examine themselves carefully and to look for the evidence of your grace at work in their lives. And I pray that those who don't find any would run to you and not let go until they see evidence of your work in their lives. Thank you, Father, for your good, good work. You have taken care of our greatest needs through the death of your son. And we are dependent on him and his work for everything from now and forever. So thank you for solving the great problem. And thank you for walking with us through the difficulties of life. We could not live this life alone. And we thank you that we don't have to. Would you help us to keep walking by faith? No matter what trials may come, no matter what challenges may come to us, help us to trust you with them. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I think we've got it.